welcome everyone, uh, particularly warm welcome if this is your first time here at uh, Liberty Church. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Matt, I'm the pastor here at Liberty. Uh, it's great to have you with us. Um, we know that walking into a big imposing building with a room full of strange people that you don't know, we're not strange, we're just, we're strange because you don't know us, we're lovely. Uh, but we're really glad that you made it. We hope that you feel very much at home here amongst us this morning. Um, next Sunday, we've got a really important week coming up uh, in the life of the church in that we're appointing four elders. Uh, elders is a, a phrase that... Oh, thank you so much, Daniela. That's very kind. Here we go. The word elders is a, a word that the Bible uses to describe... Uh, leaders in the church who are, who are essentially fathers in the church community, who take a role of uh, oversight and care for the church. They're not the only leaders in the church. We have lots of different leaders who serve in lots of different ways here at Liberty Church. Uh, but next Sunday, we're going to be appointing four elders, which for us as a church is sort of like it's, it's like a growing up moment. We started this church eight years ago from a small nucleus of about 10 people, and the church has grown since then uh, to where we are today. So this is, feels like a very much an important growing up moment for us as a life of the church. So we'd love to, for you to all feel involved in that. And there are two ways you can do that. First of all, you can come along next Sunday. Um, it's gonna be an important week, uh, a moment of celebration for us as well next Sunday. So please join us at both services. We'll be doing that. But also just pray for us when the Bible talks about how you, the process of appointing elders, it doesn't say an awful lot other than it says to pray. So we'd really value all of us as the church family just prayerfully supporting us as we do that. Okay, if you have a Bible with you, if you want to turn to the book of Acts, uh, which you'll find uh, uh, sort of halfway through your, 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 well, halfway through the New Testament towards the end of your Bible. Uh, we've been working through a series here, uh, working through this book uh, and using it as a bit of a window to help us see what God has planned for his people, his church. Um, particularly, we're going to focus in today on uh, how you begin to see this church that's been planted and started in the city of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be at the end of Acts 4 today where you get a little window, a, a picture into how the church interacted with each other, but also with the world around them. Um, and also, you get a bit of a picture of their heart for the poor and for the needy. Uh, so we're going to look at that subject today. In particular, we've also mentioned, if you were here last week and through the week as well, that we'd be taking an offering this week for... Uh, okay, let me read from verse 32 of Acts chapter 4. It says this, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were the owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means 
son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Jesus, we thank you so much for your life, death and resurrection, which now for us here this morning who would call ourselves followers of Jesus, that's transformed everything for us. The fact that you are alive, that you've conquered sin and death, that right now you're sitting on your throne, ruling over creation, changes everything for us. This is truly good news. And it's good news for us, and it's good news for the world around us, the city around us as well. And we just pray as we look at this wonderful little glimpse into the life of this little church this morning, that it would affect us here as a church today, that you'd speak to us and guide us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In this story in the book of Acts, as I said, you get this little glimpse here into the life of the church. And we begin to see how the church interacts with the world around them. It's an, an important subject for us, because I don't know about you, but watching the news unfold, not just only over the last two weeks, but the last two years, or even the last 10 years, is an unusual experience, if you think about it. In fact, many of the things that would have been subjects of TV shows or movies, things that would have just been story or fantasy, seem to have begun to play out in our, in our lives. It was in, in an episode of The Simpsons in 21 years ago that they first predicted that Donald Trump would become president. The Simpsons got there before anyone else did. In the movie Contagion, which came out 11 years ago, they predicted a global pandemic that would start in a market in China and that would spread all over the world. And they used lots of phrases that have become very popular in our language that we never heard of were all in this movie that came out 10 years ago. Even the situation in Ukraine feels like you're living through a Tom Clancy novel, you know, The Sum of All Fears or something like that. And it can lead you to ask, it makes us feel uncomfortable, it makes us feel uncertain because our world isn't supposed to be like that. We're supposed to have progressed. The society is supposed to have, have moved past these sort of things, that war is what used to happen. You know, the world used to get in these global conflicts. The world used to stare down the barrel of nuclear war, but we've grown up now. We're, we've progressed, we're mature. The world has moved on from those things. We've, surely we've conquered those things that have previously held back society and humanity. And then you watch the news and it, and it shocks us because we're just not prepared for it. And we have to ask, well, what's, what's happened? What, why is this still an issue in our, in our age? What, why, is, why is poverty not become history? Why does slavery still exist? Why is there still racism all around us? Surely we've, we've matured as a, as a, as a race, as, a, as humanity. We've gone beyond these things now. But sadly, 
That's the reality of our world, is that we haven't, is that we still struggle. There's still things that hold us back. In a sense, we're not any different from where we were 200 years ago or 500 years ago or 2,000 years ago when this book, the Bible, was written. And I'm not trying to say that somehow Christians are anti-progress. We're not. Progress is good. It's important. And in, in many things, the, the, the progressive vision of the world is a very Christian ideal, that Christians want to see the world transformed. They want to see uh, uh, poverty alleviated. They want to see those who are suffering lifted up out of their troubles to find a new life. That's a very Christian way of thinking. But the Bible is it's real about human nature. It's real about what we're like, about human capacity, about human capability. The Bible is real about what we are able and not able to do. And the Bible is clear that we need a saviour. So much of what people are searching for around us, they're dreaming of a, a utopian world free of war, free of slavery, free of suffering. They've got this utopia, this dream that they want. They're believing for a kingdom, but they don't want the king. And that's what we believe that the world needs. Not just a kingdom, but it needs a king to rule over his kingdom. You see, if you go back to the beginning of the Bible, you get to see that there's a, there's a problem in the world. See, God's original intention was that Adam and Eve would live in the Garden of Eden. It would be a place of human flourishing. It'd be a place of blessing. It'd be a place where humanity got to live purely as God had designed them to live. But you see, sin enters the world and is the beginning of suffering, the beginning of injustice, the beginning of pain at that point in history, which maybe you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus. And the idea of talking about uh, sin, the idea of talking about the Garden of Eden sounds bizarre to you. It might sound just like a weird myth. Like it's just, just this silly story that Christians talk about. But I think it's really the best way to understand the world. Because even secular ideologies often think in the same way. As in, if you think about uh, Marxism, of the philosophy in which communism is founded upon, in Marxist belief, there, is a, there was a world that was once perfect, and then capitalism came, and that was a kind of a full moment. And Marxism is just restoring the world to what it really should have been. It's the same narrative that we would believe, in that we believe in, in a, a God of creation who breathed his perfect plan of what the world should be like, and then a fall where sin came into the world, and then a redemption that takes place in Jesus Christ. And many ideologies around us, in a sense, copy that fashion, but they see the, the issue of the fall of sin to be somewhere else from, from how we would see it. You see, we do believe as, as Christians that there is, 
There is a better world to be had. We're not, when we talk about sin and the reality of human nature, I'm not trying to be bleak. I believe God has a plan for his world, a purpose for his kingdom. He talks about in, in the book of Deuteronomy, he's, God says there, there'll be no more poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. There'll be no more poor among you. That's always been God's heart for the people of God. His plan, his purpose. God always looks upon the needy and the broken, the refugees, those who are suffering, those without a voice. And his, his heart is toward them. You, you can't read the Bible and not pick up the, the atmosphere, the tone of just the language the Bible uses towards those who are in need, those who are suffering, those who are poor. And what Jesus has come to do is he's, he's come to restore that ancient vision. That although that was God's promise in Deuteronomy back at the beginning of the Old Testament, the people of God never quite lived out that promise to the full. They rebelled against God again and again. But his, but his plan, Jesus' plan, is, is to breathe life into that vision, to breathe hope into the world. And not just to sort of bring a new message, but Jesus came to break the curse of sin. If the root of all this poverty in our world, the root of all the injustice is sin, Jesus has come to break the curse that stands over humanity, to come and set us free, to usher in his new kingdom, a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom of mercy, a kingdom of justice. And to bring that about, he sent into his world the church, us. When we can look at what's going on in the world around us and think, what is, what's God going to do? Well, part of the answer is, well, what's God already done? He sent his son, Jesus, to die for a broken world. And now he sent us, his people, empowered by his grace to go and live in the world, to live as a transformative presence, to try and transform the world around us by his grace. And in Acts chapter 4, you get a little picture of how this church uh, that started in Jerusalem, some of the things they do. So we're going to look at a few of the distinctives of that, of that church. First of all, that they were together in unity. It says in verse 32, the full number of those who believed were of, were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own, but they had everything in common. They were of one heart and soul and they had everything in common. That's, that, that was the, the unity that they had. You see, in, in Acts chapter 2, which we were looking at a few weeks ago, there's a moment of, in a sense, almost theological unity. There's a moment where uh, God starts to speak to them through all sorts of different tongues, all sorts of different languages, and this great crowd on the day of Pentecost hears the gospel proclaimed in their own language. 
And it's God saying, no, this, he's bringing unity back into the world. The disunity of all the different languages, all the different people groups, God's trying to bring them all back together again. But it's not, with God, it's not just a vision, it's not just an ideal, it, it becomes practical. That's what happens in Acts chapter four. This unity becomes real. It's not just a unity in a, in a, sometimes in Christian meetings, you can have a unity where you sort of, you all hold hands and you might sing a song about unity. So we're going to be unified. Let's all hold out. Let's just have a big family cuddle together, which there's nothing wrong with cuddling. But what, what God wants us to see that to be of one heart and soul as a body of believers is more than just saying that you're unified. There's, there's a practical outworking of that. They had everything in common. They, they weren't selfishly hoarding up, but they were, they were thinking, do you know what, I've got this thing and it would bless someone else. I'll give it away. The wealth that God's given me by his grace, how could I use that to lift up my brothers and sisters? There was a wonderful unity around them. And so, so often the, the norm of our world is of, particularly in a city like this, the norm of our world is one of, of isolation and dependence upon ourselves. We just want to do things our way. Um, we don't like to ask for help. That feels like weakness. And we just want to plot our own path, do our own thing, keep our doors closed. And if things get really desperate, we might cry out for help. And the gospel comes to take that, that way of life and turn it completely on its head. That as Christians, we get to be in one another's lives, to really know one another, to, to help serve one another before the situation gets critical, but just in the regular patterns of life, to serve and to bless one another. And this, the way that they're living here, the way that they're having everything in common, it's... It's countercultural. Our, our society doesn't function like that. But 2,000 years ago, it was even more countercultural. This is a very un Roman way of living for a people that were living in a, a Roman world dominated by the Roman Empire. In Rome, everything was about power and status. There was no social welfare, there was no state provision for the poor. If you were poor, you were a slave and then you died. There, there, was, there was no seeking to lift people up out of poverty. That, that, this is, what this church is doing in Acts chapter four is completely revolutionary. We're blessed to live in a world where lots of that does take place. In a nation where even the government does seem to want to help the poor, where there are lots of services in our city that seek to, uh, 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 free people from all sorts of different things. And that wasn't true 2,000 years ago. What the church is doing is they're being a light to the world. They're completely revolutionary in how they're living and working out their faith. And what this church does in Acts chapter 4 changes history. Because the reason that our city isn't like that anymore is because of the effects of Christianity over 2,000 years. That what the church brought into the world that was just so unusual, so completely different, that then it, it, we're going to see as it goes through the book of Acts, 
It flows out around the Mediterranean. It flows out around Western Europe, and it keeps on going. That today, it's not just one church in Jerusalem, but there are thousands and thousands, probably millions of churches, millions and millions of believers all around the world that have changed how society functions by what happened here. And the real hallmark of this is they lived with this this just wonderful sacrificial generosity. It says in verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. There was not a needy person among them. They, to be, to live with a sense of real generosity in your heart, it does have to be sacrificial sometimes. Sometimes it might mean, do you know what, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go on the holiday I plan to go on this year because I want to give the money away. Joe and I have done that numerous times. We've saved up money to do a particular thing and then we just felt God say, just give it away. <laughs> and it's not been as though God has sort of have made us feel gloomy and sad about it. Like, oh no, we're just going to have to lose this thing we were looking forward to. How sad. But God's given us faith to do it. Like, what an adventure. I would rather give my money to the kingdom of God than have, you know, a new satellite TV. Goodness, satellite TV, that was a quote from the 1990s, wasn't it? People don't do that anymore. What sort of TV do people have these days? But what God does is he... when, When I talk about sacrificial generosity, it can sound very um, hard and dull and painful. And there is a sense of pain attached to it, but there's so much blessing there. Sacrificial generosity, it it trusts God in, in, first of all, it trusts God in the giving. It's not just a a kind of a cold act of obedience, but it's it's an act of faith. It's stepping into an adventure. I'm going to give this money or this thing, I'm just going to give it away to serve someone else, to serve a people, to serve those who are in need. And as I do it, I step into an adventure with God. I trust him. I trust that whatever I'm giving to him, he's going to use for his glory wherever it goes. You trust God for the, the giving, but you also trust God for what you'll receive. That we believe in a God who, he, he doesn't leave us empty-handed. You can't outgive God. You can't give so much away that God goes, uh-oh, oh, well, sorry, sorry, Matt, you've given all your money away, tough luck. You know, that's not God's heart towards us. But God sees the generosity in our hearts and he, not in a, necessarily in a transactional sense. It's not that you give 500 euros and the next day you get 500 euros back. Although that's happened in my life sometimes. Well, Joe and I have given money away in faith and then we've got a letter for, you know, you've got a tax rebate that we weren't expecting. Oh, wow, great. Or someone else has given us money that's total to that amount. That's happened numerous times. But you don't, that's not why we give because we're expecting it back. But you can always trust God that he's at both ends of the line. He's at the start and he's at the end. That he'll provide for you in your giving, in your generosity. And what we see in this story here 
is that really what's happening in, the, in this church is that the, the grace of God is coming alive. When you encounter the grace of God in your life, when you encounter the richness of his mercy, it begins to transform you. God begins to change you from the inside out and it will have practical effects. You'll begin to think differently about your money, about your possessions, about your time. You'll begin to want to start giving it away because he's changed your heart. And as a church here in this city, we'll increasingly want to serve and love this city because God's done and is doing a work of his grace amongst us. And I'm just going to invite two people just to jump up and share some ways that we as a church here uh, seeking to help our city in some ways that lots of other people are doing the same. Dan. Thank you very much. Morning all. Uh, Toast, come on up too. We uh, have a team here, a social justice team that have been meeting for quite a while and praying together monthly and faithfully seeking God, asking him how can we serve this city in practical ways. I want to show you this flyer, and then Tos is going to tell you one of the ways you can specifically get involved this week. This flyer will be available as you leave. It is a, a, a compilation of many ways we can get involved as a church and many resources that char other charities and uh, government resources are available. So there's kind of a, it's worth sticking to your fridge if you hear of someone in need, you can refer to it, but I'd also encourage you to turn to the middle page, Opportunities for Social Outreach. The first three we are particularly fond of. The uh, number one is Serve the City, who Matt has mentioned. We've been talking to them this week uh, about some of the relief for Ukraine. Um, at Christmas time, a number of us put together boxes and they are just wanted to express their gratitude again for that. They love us, we love them, they're doing wonderful things in our city. Serve the city, the Salvation Army are another great organization. And will you help me pronounce this? Wereldhuis. Yeah. Thank you. Get involved with them. Over to Toast. So, um, we started last Wednesday coming together here in church. We opened the church and um, we prayed. We prayed for all these organizations. We prayed for each other. We had a little devotional. In that devotional, we saw that Jesus promised us that when two or three are together in his name, he will be with us. He was with us. And we prayed for the organizations and um, we had a good time together. We were church in action because we came to together and we meet each other. We learned each other more. So it was really nice. But especially, 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 uh, uh, the most important thing was to pray for all these organizations together. So that's what we did, I yeah. suppose. Yeah. So come and join us this Wednesday, every Wednesday running up to Easter at 9.30. Just in here. Thanks so much, guys. 
that just gives you a little bit of a picture of uh, some things we've been to do. So there's a big pile of those bits of paper. So grab one, and as Dan said, stick it to your fridge, and uh, you can use that as and when you need it. This, this vision that we see in Acts chapter 4, I want to just take a moment and speak into the most obvious question that I think probably arises from it. When it says they, they had everything in common and that there was no needy person among them. This is a bold vision. <laughs> and it might feel like a bit of an impossible vision. How can that really be true? How can you have a community of people that have everything in common that doesn't necessarily make sense in our heads, in our world? How can you have a, a world where there's no needy people there? What does that look like? You know, is this, what's going on here in this story? Because it seems so bold as to almost be impossible, to be out of reach. Well, there's two things to say about that. First of all, in the kingdom of God, there's always a sense of the, what's now and what's not yet. There's a sense of overlap in how things work. That God gives us a big, grand vision of how he wants his church to be, of how we're to, to live in the world. Uh, and it's a, it's a bold, kind of idealistic vision which can sometimes always fall out of you because we still live in a broken world. We still live with sin around us, even within our own hearts. We're not perfect, but the grace of God comes to help us in every step of the way. You see, even we're going to get in a few weeks to the next story in chapter 5, where you find here in, in chapter 4, they're selling all their possessions, they're selling their homes, they're bringing the proceeds and they're putting the, the feet of the apostles. In Acts chapter 5, something quite different happens where someone does that, but they're actually lying that they've actually kept the money for themselves. So already we begin to see that very quickly, just in a few verses later, that they no longer were having everything in common because one couple in this church weren't living that way. And also it's important to say that the, what makes this bold vision possible is not, if you look at it from our human capacity, what could we as a group of people achieve? These things will feel impossible. But when you think about what can the Holy Spirit achieve? I loved what Toast was sharing about uh, gathering on Wednesday to pray and that was the church in action. Yes. When the church prays, that's the church in action. Because that's what happens in this story. You see, in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes on the people of God. And then it says you've got a similar story in, in Acts chapter 2, that the result is they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any who had need. In Acts chapter 4, just before this story we've just read, it says they prayed, the place where they gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then united in one heart and one soul, they have everything in common. There's no needy person among them. You see that in those two stories, in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, what happens is they pray and the Holy Spirit comes. 
And sometimes if you're a Christian, perhaps you've been around churches for a while, you think, oh yeah, the Holy Spirit comes and then we have a great time in God together. Well, yes, that's true, but the Holy Spirit comes and then it changes the church. The Holy Spirit comes and sends the church into action. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He equips us for his, for his witness, for his work, for what he's called us to. And the Spirit comes and breathes life into the church. And the other key difference factor is here is that what happens is that when the Holy Spirit comes, as I was talking about before, when the, the Holy Spirit comes and makes the grace of God alive in your heart, he just begins to change you. When, when you read about how Jesus talks about money or how the Bible talks about how they cared for the poor, what we're not trying to do is give you a, a new commandment or a new law that you have to live by. We're not saying you've all got to give 10% of your money to church. Here's the new commandment that you have to follow. We're not trying to put a new layer of guilt on your life. The grace of God does the opposite thing. What happens is the Holy Spirit comes and he gives you a new heart. When the Bible talks about generosity, it talks about it in the context of giving with joy. Even sacrificial generosity comes with a sense of joy. We toast and the team who gathered to pray and this social justice team that have been gathering together, they don't do it because they feel they have to. They do it because they want to. Because God's changed their heart. They want to serve this city. See, because when you meet Jesus, when you discover his great generosity towards us, it completely transforms your life. It says in 2 Corinthians, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. See, Jesus had everything, all the riches of heaven at his disposable, and yet he chose to become poor so that we could have all the riches of his grace. It says in Ephesians that, that Jesus is rich in mercy. That's what he's rich in. It doesn't say that God's rich in, in anything else in the Bible. The only thing that the Bible says that God is rich in is he's rich in mercy. When it comes to mercy, God is a multi-billionaire. He has it all. And he wants to flood your life with his mercy. And when the mercy of God comes, when you receive his forgiveness, his compassion, when he deals with the sin in your life and shows you his lavish grace, it just changes you. You want to be merciful towards others. You want to see justice come in the world around you because you've received his mercy. You've received his goodness. I'm going to just pray for us and then we're going to uh, share communion together and we can worship God together. Let me pray. Jesus, we, as a church, we do want to live differently. We, don't, we do want to live as people who are transformed by your grace. We do want to see the poor and the needy around us and the poor and the needy far away. We want to see the stories of what's happening in Ukraine and 
uh, and want to see change. And we recognise that we live in a, in a broken world that's full of pain and suffering, but that you sent your church, your people into that world to love and to serve and to see the richness of your mercy flood out into the world around us. And it all starts with us coming to you and receiving the fullness of your mercy towards us. We just pray right now that you would flood into our hearts just the richness of your love towards us, that it would change us from the inside out, that we'd be motivated to love and to serve those around us because, because of what we've received in you. Thank you, Jesus, for your mighty work for us. Amen.